Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. For many, these are tough times. Can you still give thanks, even in the midst of hardship? Dr. Brian Chappell, stated clerk of the Presbyterian Church in America, brings us this sermon entitled, Thanksgiving Without Earthly Reason, which covers Psalm 100. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Perimeter Church. Our scripture reading today is Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. And his truth endures to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together our prayer of illumination that the Spirit might instruct us from God's Word. Gracious Father, your Word is able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Through your Spirit, give us spiritual ears to hear it, spiritual eyes to see it, spiritual taste to desire it, and spiritual hearts to receive it, that we would not be fools but wise in Christ's name. Amen. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. Sounds simple. What might that mean? Perhaps something like this. In the name of God, amen. We whose names are undersigned, having undertaken this endeavor for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith, do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and of one another, covenant and combine ourselves into one civil body politic for our better ordering and preserving and furtherance of the ends aforesaid. Mayflower Compact, November 11, 1620. You know what that's about. You remember how the pilgrims came, and you may remember that roughly a year after that compact was signed for bringing the glory of God into this land, there was a celebration, a thanksgiving for God's care. And let me paint the picture. We've all seen it. We all know it. Thronging crowds of pilgrims and Indians gather together around tables that are laden with turkeys and hams and Indian cords slathered in butter. It's creaking under the weight of all the food, almost inviting people to come, not only for the good stuff, but for the puddings and the pies that everybody has been working on for so long. Hardly can they wait to attack, but they do wait. Moms shush some kids. The Indian and the pilgrim children that have been playing together are gathered by grandparents, quieted down. 
So they can offer a prayer of thanksgiving. And they do. That's the picture that has very little to do with reality. (laughs) Only 101 pilgrims arrived aboard the Mayflower. Within three months, over half had died. In the worst of times, they were dying at a rate of two or three per day. In the worst of times, there were only 10 still able-bodied to go out and hunt game or keep the fires going. They were dying of exposure and starvation and disease. (laughs) There were no hams and butter. Livestock slaughtered long before. There were no thronging crowds. Who did disease and starvation and exposure take first? The grandparents and the children. And not just the pilgrims, but the Indians who had been decimated by disease a year before the pilgrims even arrived. If there's any truth in the image that we love this time of year, it is this. They did pause after the harvest and offer a prayer of thanksgiving. Why? Why in the world with so much pain and suffering and difficulty, even if you had had a meager harvest, would you pause to say, thank you, Lord? Why would Abraham Lincoln 200 years later have a national day of thanksgiving ordered for the nation when it had just been weeks since Gettysburg, when 10 thousand died or were wounded in only three days. Why would you offer a prayer of thanks? Why in the world? And the answer is for no earthly reason at all. Ultimately, our prayers of thanksgiving, as they are instructed here by the psalmist, come not so much because of our circumstances, but because of the character of our God. Something that we are perceiving beyond a a broken world or difficult circumstances. We have to know that because while we're celebrating that our families may be getting together, for some of us that means renewed tension or reminders of difficulties or the pain of what will happen when families don't gather. Can there be thanksgiving without an earthly reason? The psalmist ultimately tells us to give thanks, to honor the call of our Lord. Three times in the opening verses of this psalm, we are told to make a joyful note to the Lord, to serve the Lord, to know the Lord. And in your Bibles, if you're looking at them, every letter in that word Lord is capitalized. That's because it's the personal name of the Old Testament God. This is Jehovah, not Elohim, large God, but rather the personal God. This is the Jesus of the Old Testament. The Jehovah, the one who comes near, the one who makes covenant with people and keeps his covenant even when they do not. It is that God who is saying, come to me, serve me, make noise to me. (laughs) And you're saying, well, what, what does that mean? Some of your Bibles actually don't say make a joyful noise. They say, shout God's praise. It's idea that God 
is honored by our coming to him. And when he says, make noise, it's not Friday night football games, it's worship. And when he says, serve me with gladness, he's saying it's, it's not begrudging, it's not out of a sense of terror and fear, but rather you're to come with gladness and even into my presence with singing, as though God is saying, I actually delight to have you come near, knowing your past, your brokenness, your difficulty, why you may not even want to give thanks, God is saying, I'd rather have you close to me. Please come near. Come before his presence with singing. If you're trained in academic backgrounds, as I have been, sometimes we only read these verses for their objective truth. We have an action that is instructed. Make a joyful noise. Serve the Lord. Come before his presence. But of course, actions are not all that God is commanding here. He's commanding attitudes too. Don't just make noise. It's supposed to be joyful. Your worship isn't just somber or sad. We're to be filled with joy and we're to serve the Lord. Not begrudgingly, but with gladness. We're to come before his presence, not cringing, not in terror, but with singing. We kind of get that. There's an action and an attitude, and we can just kind of objectively analyze it that way. But the trouble is, if you actually say there's an action and an attitude commanded, real life gets in the way. I mean, I understand how you can command an action, but how can you command an attitude? All of us get it when we're headed toward grandma's house in a few days, right? And as you're getting closer and closer to grandma's house and the anticipation turns to anxiety in the family car, what happens? You know, anxiety turns to kids bothering one another. And so every good parent knows what to say before you get to grandma's house, right? Stop poking your sister. And dry those tears. And I want to see that frown turned upside down. You paste a smile on that face. Now, now listen, you may actually stop the fighting. And you may get the tears dried away. But nobody in the car imagines that anybody is happy. <laughs> you, you, you can command the action, but not the attitude. How can God do both here? Except that we are understanding that the action, worship, Service, coming close to him, pleases him. And so it brings us joy, gladness, thanksgiving, to know that what we can do can bring him honor. That doing the hard thing actually accomplishes something for the honor and the glory of God. What I'm really contending is that, of course, actions can bring attitudes that hands can lead hearts, that doing the things that God is requiring of us actually begins to change us at a heart level to honor and experience the goodness of our God. Kathy and I experienced this some years ago. You just recently celebrated your 25th, no, 45th anniversary. Our first church just recently celebrated its 200th anniversary. And that's a blessing in itself but things can happen when you're in a small town, as we were decades ago in our first church, which was quite old, 
which meant the building was collapsing, but so was the congregation. And so the new young pastor says, I got an idea. There are only about 5,000 people in this town. If we divide up houses, we can knock on every door in town and present the gospel. That was a great idea the pastor had. <laughs> of course, we began to hear about it from some people. You, you've met these people. They're in every church. You know the sourpusses, you know, the people who act like they were baptized in lemon juice, you know, it's... With, with this wonderful plan to knock on every door, we were told, you can't do that. Our neighbors will think that our church is hurting for members. Well, we did it anyway. Every house in town got a door knock, a pamphlet, an explanation of the gospel if they would let us do so. But here was the problem. After knocking on the door of every house in town, the number of new families that responded was this many. One. Wasn't even really a family in many ways. It was a, a couple living together without benefit of marriage in a van. They were the only ones who came. Now the sourpusses are having a field day. You know, Not only are we communicating that our church is hurting, we're getting people who shouldn't be here. Well, we lived with that for a while, but you know, one of the couples that was so upset with us was getting older, and the man discovered that fall that he needed help getting leaves out of his gutter. So it came, Pastor, could you send the deacons over to get the leaves out of my gutter? Well, I can do that, but why don't you hire Vance, the now husband in the couple who came out of the van? He needs the money. He hired Vince. Vince not only cleared out the gutters, but cleaned up the lawn. Man began to like Vince. After a while, his wife said, I can't go to the store to get groceries. Can you get somebody to get groceries? Well, why don't you hire Anna, Vince's wife? She's expecting a baby now. She needs some money. Why don't you ask her if she will get some groceries for you? And so the older couple so sour, so upset that Vince and Anna actually began to invite them into their lives. And the more they helped the couple, and the couple helped the older couple, the more hearts began to change. Before we knew it, <laughs> the older couple were the chief defenders of Vince and Anna in the church. If anybody was upset with Vince and Anna, they had to deal with the older couple. <laughs> They had been changed by their service. They had been changed by doing as God intended for his people. Worship and service and presence resulted in changed hearts. It's the way it works. And when you begin to recognize that, you begin to recognize why we would say, you need to recognize that coming before the Lord with singing is appropriate at Thanksgiving, even if there may not be an earthly reason. And it may be that you begin to see change as this older couple did. But what if you don't see results of your actions or your attitudes? Why then would you give thanks? Verse 3. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. We are 
We are to give thanks to respond to the blessings of God's grace. Those blessings are apparent as you begin to just read that third verse in all of its context. Know that the Lord, that's the personal God again, He is God. He who has made us. The Jehovah God, the the personal Jesus God of the Old Testament, is fully God. Your personal God is the one who made you. He's the creator. All things were made by him. And yet he came in the person of Jesus to save you. And that's an amazing thought. That our Jehovah Jesus is God, the creator. We can hardly get our hands around what it means that our God is the creator of all things. My, my one uh, visual aid is a salt shaker. You know, if you were to take just a, not even a teaspoon of salt out of the salt shaker and to count the grains it would roughly equal the number of stars that you could see on a clear night with the naked eye. How many stars are there actually? Uh, More than if you filled up the salt shaker with all the way to the top with the grains. Actually, the scientists with their super telescopes and theories tell us that there are roughly 200 billion stars trillion stars. I have no idea what that means. And so they explain it to my simple mind. If you were to take all the grains of sand on all the beaches of all the oceans of the world, it would not total the number of stars. Some of which are so large as to be able to encapsulate our whole solar system. Can you imagine how great a God that he is the creator of the stars that number 200 billion trillion, more than all the grains of sand, of all the beaches, of all the oceans, of all the world. And he cares about you. That's what the psalmist says. When I consider the heaven, the moon and the stars that you have set in place, God, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? It's it's astounding. It's it's the grace of God in in physical display in such ways that, that we can hardly contain it. And yet what the psalmist is saying, verse three is, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is who made us and not we ourselves. And we are his. We're his people and the sheep of his pasture. You you get some sense of the verse if you just kind of smush together the beginning and the end. He is God. And we are his. How does he even notice? And yet not only did he notice... But he sent his son to a cross to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin. He who knows you by name. He who knew every word that you would say before you were born. Who knew all the events of your life from eternity past. That same God of all creation and all time made you. 
claims you and cares for you. It's, it's the wonder of divine attention <laughs> that he even knows us, much less that he would send his son for us. We capture the feeling of it, I suppose, at times just by comparison. You know, the recent death of Queen Elizabeth called lots of people to call from their memoirs or memories some interchange that they'd had with the queen. And my favorite was from a friend of mine, a pastor now in Mississippi. And he wrote of his experience with the Queen of England. Here's what he wrote. This was about 20 years ago, and we had taken, my wife and I, 25 recently graduated high school students to Westminster Abbey. We were just about to leave the Abbey when somebody found out the Queen is coming, and so we decided to stay. We waited and waited and waited. Probably an hour or so, nothing happened. Finally, I said to my wife, let's go. I wouldn't wait this long for the Apostle Paul. <laughs> Suddenly, there were sharpshooters on the tops of different surrounding buildings. And I heard the sirens and a motorcade of motorcycles and large cars pulled up. But just before that happened, about 40 or 50 older women were ushered right in front of us into the abbey. Some limped. Some were invalids. Who were they? Someone said, these are the maidens of Dunkirk. You may remember the famous battle when the French and English troops were cornered on the French coastline by the Nazis. 300,000 men about to be lost. What happened? The flotilla of yachts and fishing boats and barges came from England and began to collect those who were injured those who were in danger, and took them back to England. But so many were medically in need by the time they get back to England that it was overwhelming the medical system of England. And so a call went out. Would, would young women who are not otherwise occupied in the military effort, will they come and nurse these tens of thousands of wounded soldiers back to health? They did. And when Queen Elizabeth assumed her reign, she said she would meet with those maidens of Dunkirk every year if they would meet with her. And here was the annual meeting at Westminster Abbey. But my friend writes a little more. He says this. Shortly after the queen had established that day, not only did she come to the abbey, but she began regularly to come to the abbey. So when we saw her that day, she was just getting out of her car to meet the maidens of Dunkirk. And she walked right in front of us, maybe 10 feet away. And as she walked by, she glanced up, and our eyes met. I was staring face to face with the Queen of England, and she held my gaze for a full second. <laughs> Someone who is so great and doing something so caring met his gaze for just a second. Someone else who is so great 
and so caring that he would send his son to die on a cross for your sin, not only meets your gaze for a second, he holds you in his heart for eternity. That's why he sent his son, so that you could be in his presence, glad for his grace, worshiping him because of the greatness that has been caring for you from before you were born to this very moment for all eternity. That same God is worthy of thanksgiving even when there is not an earthly reason. There is a heavenly reason. God has maintained his love across continents and eons and space and your time to care for you, to claim you, and call you his own. That is why we have verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him. Bless his name. Why do we do that? Because we recognize that by praising him, by offering our thanks, we are responding not only to the blessings of grace, but we are claiming the blessings of heaven for the trials of earth. They can be tough. We all know that. Maybe we feel it particularly when we read the last words of the psalm, verse 5. For the Lord is good. Preachers are supposed to say that. The Bible's supposed to say that. But there are people who have real trouble acknowledging that. I'm supposed to give thanks to God because the Lord is good. Pastor Jeff was so nice to introduce me to you as he did. And you recognize my job these days involves going to lots of churches, lots of conferences. So I go to lots of different cities. And I get picked up by people, sometimes people I've known for decades. Happened not so long ago. Man picked me up. We were getting reacquainted. How's the Lord blessing you, I said. Brian, he said, my son is in prison now. And my business is in trouble. And because of those tensions, my wife and I are more distant from each other than we have been our whole marriage. How can I possibly believe that God is good? You know, if you're like me at all, when people ask you those hard questions in the midst of their hurt, I panic inside. I'm, what am I supposed to say? How do I respond to that? But somehow I felt like the Holy Spirit gave me words to say. And I had to say, Sam, if I just look at your circumstances, I have not a clue why you should believe that God is good. But we don't believe that God is good because of our circumstances in a broken, fallen world. We believe that God is good because of his character. And his character was displayed on a hill called Calvary where he suffered and died for our eternity. Whenever I begin to wonder, is God good? I try to go in my mind's eye to that Golgotha and look at the thorns on the brow and the nails in the hand and the feet and the wound in the side 
And when Satan tempts me by saying, does your God really care about you? I say, doesn't my God care about me? He is good, and he has proven his goodness by sending his son to preserve your eternity and mine. And that is why we can say, for the Lord is good. And more than that, his mercy is everlasting. He is not bound by time. He's not on my timetable. He's not on your timetable. His mercy is everlasting. And some of us may be witnesses our entire lives for results that we will not know about until we are in heaven, where God may work in us and through us for a child who's now walking away from the Lord, for parents who have never named him, for bosses who are angry at him. And we may never see the results, not in our time frame, not in our timetable. But God's mercy is everlasting. He is not bound by our time. Rather, his character is operating as he knows is right and best. And when I know that, not only that his mercy is everlasting, I understand that what's true about him never changes. His truth endures to all generations. It was true for my grandparents. It was true for the pilgrims. It's true for us. It's true for our children's children. What God is doing as a good God whose mercy is everlasting, not on our timetable, but on his, that truth will not change. He is true, and that truth will not change. And we need that for the trials of earth. Years ago, when we were in that older church, not only, I said, was the church crumbling in terms of congregation, the building was crumbling as it was approaching 200 years. So, we needed to build a new building. It wasn't an affluent community, an affluent church, and so we built a new building somewhat at a distance, and that means we did a lot of sweat equity, right? Church gets together, the carpenters, the plumbers, people doing lots of work, but at some point, um, we had to install the sound system. We, we purchased speakers out of a defunct rock band, <laughs> put them up in the ceiling, but then at some point, you know, somebody has to actually connect the speaker wires to the soundboard. You need somebody who's kind of small and wiry and willing to get up there. Can you guess who was chosen? Get the pastor up there. He's the one who's going to be using it. <laughs> so I went up there. I don't know what I'm doing. So the people who do know instruct me. They say, listen, when you get up above those ceiling tiles up in the rafters there, it's going to look like solid floor beneath you. Don't you ever step out on that floor. You stay on top of the rafters and you hold on to what's above you. Don't you depend on what's below. You hold on to what's above. What is the psalmist telling you? In a broken, fallen, painful world, if you're trying to count your reason for thanksgiving and what's below, a lot of you will have no cause. You'll fall right through your thanksgiving. And so you hold on to what's above. You believe what the scriptures say because of the God who gave himself for your soul. What does it mean to offer that kind of thanksgiving, to celebrate the God by holding on to what's above. Maybe something like this. Make a joyful noise. 
to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. And his truth endures to all generations. Praise God and thank him this Thanksgiving. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in a broken world where the evidence of sin, its corruption, the fallenness of our hearts and lives is so evident all around us, you nonetheless have shown that you are good And you did that by the provision of your own son whose mercy was so great that he would die in sacrificial death for my sins. Oh, Heavenly Father, this was not just true long ago. It's true for all generations. Thank you for such cause for thanksgiving. May it stir our hearts to sing your praises. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.